hope everyone enjoyed that. Um, it's lovely to have Felipe here. Thank you so much for coming and for sharing your amazingly powerful film with us. Um, I suppose just to start, um, it'd be great to just hear about where you came across the story, why it caught you so much and why you wanted to put it on film. I know in the film you mentioned that you went to Solidarity Nights with your father and that's where you first heard about the boycott. Um, but yeah, just tell us a bit more about that would be great. Um, I suppose in some way that's how it started. So my father was a refugee from Chile, he was a journalist, was reporting on the coup before it happened. So he had to, when the coup happened, he had to go into hiding. And he, um, he received a visa from Belgium, and that's where me and my sisters grew up. And so uh, early on we would go to quite a lot of um, solidarity events, but I only heard of this story way into the 80s, so well after uh, the boycott obviously uh, had, had finished, uh, the, the engine had disappeared, but it was still being told then as, as this ongoing event uh, to kind of boost morale, which it did at the time. And, but because uh, nothing new really ever came out, and sometimes certain things would be embellished to the point that as I got, you know, uh, as a teenager, I thought this, you know, you get a bit more cynical. I thought this is probably made up. Uh, because it was, you know, too good to be true. Because of, you know, the, the most iconic image of the coup is the ones you see early on, these planes flying over Santiago and firing rockets to the palace. These are the images that were captured by documentary makers, had to be smuggled out of Chile, and were shown all over the world. And it was this, you know, this symbol of, of the might of the, of the absolute brutality of the coup. And so to think that a bunch of workers in Scotland managed to dent out in some way, that was, um, I mean, it's really incredible. You know, it was too good to be true. So as I got older, I thought it's pretty made up. And it's only when I moved to Scotland about 15 years ago um, and got to know people who were involved with solidarity here back in the day that I was reminded of the story. And just for my own curiosity, wanted to find out exactly what happened. And, and really, um, I suppose the point of no return you know, that current all this, this kind of personal investigation to a film was meeting the guys for the first time, finding Bob, uh, finding Robert, who I'd been told, you know, they've probably passed on, uh, and find them, really that they were stuck with the same ending, that same false ending they'd had for four years. And their first question was, you know, do you think we can find what happened to the engines? And that was really the, uh, the motivation behind everything. Um. And when you first found Bob and Robert and stuff, what was their reaction when you approached them and said that you wanted to find out more about it, you wanted to put it on film, um, and you were wanting to go to Chile and really get the answers for them? Well, I mean, it was a long process. Nipasan took five years to make. And so the first reaction was probably not the one you expect, because you know, you'd think they'd be all excited. Um, obviously, we never expected it would become this, and it would have the success that it, it's had. So. I think their first reaction, as any proper, you know, old Scot, was very measured, um, and not sure if it was worth doing. I think they were like, you know, we've had this story for 40 years, and if nothing's come out, it's because there was nothing new to find, right? So it was it was hard initially to get them really invested in the process. So it's been a. Uh, you know, it's been a, a ladder, definitely. Um, you know, the first step was making a short film, uh, which you can find online. It's also called Nepasaran, it's 40 minutes. And that's, uh, we did that in 2013, and that's really the first time that three of them meet for the first time since their retirement. And it ends with a very, 
much more ambiguous now than this because uh, we really hadn't found much at the time. But um, it was the first step for us to figure out, I suppose, to get to know each other, figure out how to make a film together. And, um, you know, a lot of various things grew from that, yes. Um, does anyone in the audience have a question? Yes. Okay. Um, as a director, what was the most challenging part of making the film? Uh, the most challenging part? I mean, I think um, we really started on a very misty path, right? At the beginning, all we had was, that was documented before this, was the day of the boycott itself. Um, there was very little about the impact. so. Um, I think a lot of it was just originally the thing that was kind of keeping things going was just it was nice to meet them for the first time, get to know them. You know, obviously they don't you know don't make you heroes because they turn out to be bastards. These guys weren't, <laughs> and I was very uh, relieved to find out. And and they all have you know I mean the film focuses on their boycott, but they all have very rich personal lives, which we don't really get into. So I think it was. It was fantastic to kind of get to know them and to understand where their motivation come from. But um, I don't know. I mean, you know, we had to we had to bring an engine back to the UK. We had to organize an entire medal ceremony once the uh, the government said that they were going to do this. There's all these things that you don't really expect to do as a filmmaker, right? We had all the like thousands and th thousands of documents have been declassified, very, very dry information that we had to kind of weave to it together as a cohesive, engaging uh, story. And then we had to convince everybody behind it that it was worth doing for five years. Um, it, was, it was tough, I, I, I can't, I don't know. I can't imagine if you'd asked me that five years ago, well, it would have been a different answer. Um, but yeah, I think as I think when you make a film like that, especially when you're starting out, I think this kind of self-belief and surrounded by good, optimistic people is really good because we really didn't know where we were going with this. Um, and you know, and kind of watching it back, it's interesting that I think the, the, the barometer for the film was always the guys, right? Because you know, that story could have gone in so many different ways. It could have been a very, uh, a very uh, serious investigation from start to finish. But it was really following them as characters and what they cared about that really shaped the film throughout. Which is why, one of the last thing you see is the answer to the first question: you know, what happened to the engines? Um, so you know, it was it was very challenging. But uh, what? What was great, all these challenges actually kept the energy going throughout five years and kept everything going, which was really important. Anybody else? Yeah. It's not a question, but I mean, it's a Oh, sure. But that was a very beautiful movie, and I really enjoyed watching it. I just think it was really good, but it's hard. No worries. Everybody's waiting in silence as she leaves the room. Don't make eye contact. No worries. All right. Yeah. How long did the coup last, and was it like, um, did it, was that peaceful, like, overtaking when it, when it finished? Oh, no, 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 no. So the coup, I mean, the coup was a day, right? The 11th of September, right, 1973. Yeah. But the dictatorship lasted 17 years. Right. 
and it only lasted because by the end Pinochet felt so confident in his own power that he decided to finally have a referendum of whether or not they should have elections again. Okay. Um, so that's the referendum came in 88. Uh, there's a wonderful film called No, uh, made by a, a, a film director with Gael Garcia-Bernal, about the whole process behind that. And in 1990, they finally had their first democratic elections. And that was the end of it. But it was, it was I mean, yeah, 17 years of really brutal repression and censorship, which is one of the reasons why they never heard of the story in Chile, yeah. right? They've, they've spent a lot of effort to hide completely the effect of this action. What was the reaction to the film in Chile? Uh, well, they, they've, um, the film went out, so the film is a co-production with Chile, so um, we went out in cinemas this year in June. Um, and, I mean, the reaction, I was going to make a joke about the reaction, and that the people rose to the streets and um, are trying to, have been trying to overturn the government for the last three weeks. <laughs> it's not as good as that. But um, I think it was... It was, um, I mean, it was great. Obviously, it was one of the things we always wanted to achieve. It was amazing because while the, you know, sort of the original nugget of this story was kind of known in Scotland, kind of rumors and word of mouth, it really hadn't been told at all in Chile. So imagine discovering everything about this in 90 minutes for the first time. It, like, we had quite yeah, emotional Q&As afterwards, and a lot of people, um, who had been involved, who felt that their story somehow was told on screen and on the big screen with this big kind of, you know, soundtrack. They, they felt that their story was given their due. And so I mean, it was quite cathartic with a lot of people. And it was, it was amazing to see all people who felt this uh, immediate kinship with the Scottish guys, because the same generation, they understood what they fought for. And they thought that their values that they you know, some of them had died for in Chile, some of them had gone to prison, gone to torture in Chile, were the same values that the Scots had, and that somehow had gone full circle and managed to save some of them. So, um, I mean, that was yeah, an incredibly emotional experience. And a lot of young people, um, you know, I mean, we consume so much of our stories these days through film, right? Uh, so there was a, a lot of people who said, you know, my grandparents have told me their stories. Not really the story of the boycott, but the story of, of uh, what the Air Force officers were tortured to go through. And they say it was the first time they actually were able to put images through it, and it just hit them uh, quite forcefully. So so it's been great. So, we, I mean, yeah, so the last three weeks, Chile has been, um, I mean, they've seen some of the largest protests since the end of the dictatorship. Um, and Nepasaran, we've made it a little for free over there has been one of the shared, most shared films about dictatorship. So that's personally because of my own baggage that's been, that's been wonderful. But uh, yeah, it's been incredible. Even, you know, I mean, Chile is very polarized and it's a very um, <coughs> huge inequality in this country. And pretty much everybody's in power are people who still thought that the coup and the dictatorship were good things that needed to happen. So, um, even the most right-wing paper was uh, releasing a lot of propaganda, propaganda before the coup and during the coup and after to support Pinochet. Even they gave us a, a good review through the greater teeth, uh, which was, was very satisfying. You can't not have. <laughs> By the way, whatever way you can, support the people of Chile. Go on Twitter. They're trying to change the constitution that Pinochet has and has been unlocked for four decades, and they're trying to change that to give themselves a better 
a better chance. So uh, in any way you can make yourself hard. They don't, they're doing it for themselves. They don't need any help or financial support. But I think sometimes knowing that your voice gets heard is really important. <coughs> any other questions for Sufi? Yes, right up the back. How easy was it to track down the advisory workers to interview them? Um, it was it was um, surprisingly hard because none of them. I mean, two of them have internet now, but they didn't back then. So um, I'd been told by a lot of people that these guys were in their, you know, fifties, forties when this happened. So being Scottish working class, it was very unlikely that forty years later they'd still be alive. Um, so. <laughs> Uh, so I, I even started writing this as a fiction script. Um, eventually, I think I tried every version of Robert Somerville, who I knew he, he did uh, receive an MBE, so he was probably the most well-known out of the group, and he was the guy who was the, con the press contact for the group. So he was the one who, uh, whenever something was happening in the factory during the boycott, would go to the phone booth outside Rolls-Royce and call various papers, you know, the, the solidarity groups in London. So a lot of people knew his name, so it was really, um, eventually trying, yeah, so many of the alteration of his name that I managed to find a contact from a community council he was on once in Motherwell and eventually passed on to him. But even, uh, he says he got the message from me way before he even contacted me. His wife was like, this guy seems pretty persistent. Maybe you should give him a call and see what's up. But, um, you know, as you see them at the start of the film, they didn't really expect anything from this, right? So I think they, they really expect this would be a one meeting and off you go. Um, we never expected we'd find so much out of it. So it was, um, you know, and if you're looking at this as a storytelling point of view, you know, every film's about conflict, every film's about conflict. Obviously, the big conflict here is, is Chile and the coup, but that happened 40 years ago. The, current conflict that keeps the, I think, a lot of the emotions in the film is this, um, is the guys themselves and their, their their resistance to accept that this story what did matter and had so much of an impact. And you see that, you know, that slowly breaking down throughout the film. I love the scenes of them all together in the pub actually watching the footage um, from the guys that you interviewed in Chile. I think that there are really lovely scenes, actually. I mean, that sort of became part of the process as well. As well I realized in the individual interviews, there would be more emotion mm -hmm. because there wasn't, I suppose, the peer pressure of, of a group of men. Laugh, yeah. yeah, so there was more about making jokes. But then you, from there, you kind of get their dynamic and mm -hmm. how they work together. Mm -hmm. And you can see how, you know, you can picture them. Why would you follow? What you know, the entire factory would rally around Bob. You know, this is how he is in the group. Um, but the, um, yeah, so it was like kind of the emotion and like many more personal details from the individual interview and getting them together, you'd get more, more energy. So we, we did part this back and forth quite a bit, yeah. Is there another question up this way? Yes. Uh, yeah, I was looking at like the coup in Chile coup parallels to that recent coup in Bolivia. I mean, I mean, there is obviously. And I think, and I think everything that the um, so I don't know for those who don't know, um, Bolivia had an elected indigenous president for nearly 13 years, um, and after the last election, there was claim of uh, a fraud, and he stepped down, said oh, we're going to have new elections, and as he stepped down, the army came in, and now there's an autoproclaimed uh, fundamentalist Christian 
um, who thinks that the, all the indigenous protects Hellenic rights and should go back to the mountains. That's pretty much what she tweets about. Um, I mean, it is it is a coup, and it's it's. I mean, it's a coup in the way that it's happened. It's maybe it's been less bloody for the president, but any uh, people of um, the indigenous people of Bolivia, where the majority has been incredibly violent for them, and it's been. Uh, there's been as many casualties in, in a week than there's been in Chile for the last three weeks, where it's been incredibly brutal as well. But it's also a coup in the sense of how it's been reported by the Western world. There's absolutely, you know, any headlines from the UK or the US mention the word coup. They always say that the president has resigned, which is a false narrative. Um, so it's, it's um, no, it's incredibly worrying. And it's, I, I kind of wonder if some way the Bolivian, Right, or seeing what's happening in Chile right now, how the people are taking power for themselves and making constitution democratically to make sure that they change Bolivia as much as possible before having these new elections they're calling about. But it's, it's very similar, I think, yes. Santa, yes. <laughs> yeah, um, the general, um, given that he was like involved in the military at the time. That, that they were under rule, like, were you, like, nervous about approaching him, or I don't know what you were expecting from him? Uh, yeah, no, I was. It was a very, it was a very um, stressful thing to prepare for, and, um, you know, allegedly he's the second pilot to bomb the palace. It's, um, there's been books written about him, his name is mentioned, he denies it. He also says he was a guy on charge of the ground, which there's always been known to be somebody else on the ground. So whether he's lying or not, um, that's for you know you to decide. Um, but it was also fascinating, you know. And I'm grateful for that he accepted the interview because it's you know it's the only window we have on on the side of Pinochet. Um, and he, you know, he became one of the highest-ranking officer in the world. It's interesting that in the film, he's probably the guy in his field who's achieved the most in his life, right? He's had. Uh, you were talking about. Uh, obviously, he wanted to be a pilot from birth. His his dad was a pilot. He wanted to military. He superseded his dad in terms of what he's achieved. He, he's flown himself around the world four times. He flew the Pope to the South Pole. I asked them what they talked about. They said they changed recipes. It was a very bland person, which was quite disappointing, you know? Um, and I don't know. I mean, it depends on what you go expect. If you expect the guy to repent for what they've done, this is never, you know, I knew this was never going to happen because this is not the reality of Chile. So many people support what happened in the coup and completely. For them, the, the violence and the disappeared and all the torture, they don't really bite an eyelid. Uh, in many ways, because it doesn't affect them personally. Um, you know, I've seen wealth in Chile that I haven't even seen here. And there's a way to get this ability to cocoon themselves from the reality of the majority population, which is quite staggering, right? When he's comparing, he makes the equivalence between the boycott in Scotland with the Islamist, as he, as he puts it in quotes. And, uh, you know, that, that interview is from December 2015, which is a month after three guys went into the Bataclan in Paris in open fire at a, a rock concert and killed 150 people. 
he thinks that's the same as the boycotting Scotland. It's really hard to have a rational discussion with somebody like that, right? And, and even with the best of intentions to put themselves in your shoes. So, um, but I'm grateful for the interview. And, you know, as we gave him a, we gave him a spotlight and he turned that into a shovel and he, he dig himself a hole. Um, sometimes that's the best you can hope. <laughs> Any other questions? Yeah, right. Once you had all your footage, how long did the editing process take, including unrated parts? Well, it's hard to say because a lot happened. As you know, every time we're getting a pocket of money, me and the editor, the editor will get together and and start shaping the film. So um, we did. We spent about four months, like literally four months, all together. Uh, and we did that in, in four, four section uh, of editing. And the animation took about a year because obviously we had a very, very low budget. Um, and as we were shaping the film, some shots that we needed, maybe, uh, yeah, there was this dance of some shots going to drop because they were not as essential to the, to the storytelling and others became more important or sometimes, you know, we were dealing with Obviously, a factory that no longer existed, and a palace that um, we, yeah, was not really easy to access. So we had one day of filming for that. So yeah, we had to create shots in and then depending on, I suppose, where, as the editing was getting tighter and tighter, um, it refined exactly what we needed. But uh, we started editing as far back as 2015, and finished a month before the film came out. So it was. Uh, it was a long process, yeah. Yeah. How does it feel like sort of getting to I know that partly the film was ther therapy more than I expected it would be. Um, and the first trip to Chile, uh, which we raised really out of, you know, we made the short film, which are quite successful in, in, in festivals. Out of that, I managed to get in contact with a few people who had seen the short film and I knew had a, a bit of funding. So that first trip, we didn't really know who to interview. So I wanted to interview everybody and I used a short film as sort of the icebreaker. So, um, and what I chose to do was interview a lot of people who were in the palace, right? Which was, I suppose, part of the story because they, you know, they witnessed the attack. Well, nobody really can swing the attack because they were all, you know, hiding under a table somewhere. But it was fantastic for me to be able to, you know, people who were like, you know, one degree of separation from Allende, which was a figure I grew up in entire life. People are going through the exile like my dad and understand all these kind of shared uh, experiences. And it was, you know, it was fantastic to see, you know, for example, we had the, uh, the Minister of Health of Allende, who's the guy who fought for that. You know, Chile, big problem back then was malnutrition in children. Uh, so he fought for have a, a pint of milk for every child, which Pinochet took away, like Pasha did here. Um, and 
you know, at the end of the interview, he said, oh, can you keep the camera turning? I want to send a message to your dad. And I said, well, do you know each other? He's like, no, but, you know, we were exiled. He's like, well, were you an exile in Belgium? I said, well, I was an exile in Venezuela, but, you know, we were exiled. We've gone through the same thing. And he uh, sent him a message about, you know, in the, hopefully in the future, they'll go for a drink together and talk about their shared experiences. So I think that, that was fantastic, this idea of understanding that, you know, I suppose we've all been connected to so many people in all these different ways. Um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty tall and I'm very white and but in Belgium, I've got a very chilling name and, you know, they call me the chilling guy and I remember every time I would go to, uh, to, uh, to a new teacher, they would do these things like, hello, Felipe, do you speak French? You know, like, and, and I'm like, yeah, of course, I grew up speaking French. So I've experienced that and then I went to Chile when I was quite young. Uh, and of course, they would call me the Belgian guy, right? So nationality is a very fluid, you know, identity is a very fluid concept, I think, for, for many of us. I think many of you experienced that. And now I've been in Scotland for 15 years, so I don't know what to tell you. Uh, and Scotland's my home. Um, you know, you grow up, you know, you do... I think one of the things that I think I've... Um, gather from other people in, you know, whether whether it was from exile from Chile or from whatever countries, you know, you I suppose you, you your victory over what happened was being done to your the generation above you is that you do have your own life, right? And you feel confident, and you have your own family, you have your own friends, and you share this joy together. I think that's the only way you can really. I mean, it's it sounds quite naff, but really. It's what you need to do for yourself, right? And it was interesting that this film did a lot of that for me, right? It kind of cemented my home in Scotland. Bob, some of his wife called me their adopted son. You know, you just, I think the same way for the, to shape the storytelling of the film, our barometer was what the guy cared most about emotionally, which was to find out that the engines um, were uh, were fucked by the time they left Scotland because that's what Rose had told him for so long that the engines were in fine when they left Chile, when they left Scotland and as guys who had grown up kind of working class, never went to college, they knew metal, you know, some of them like uh, started Rolls-Royce when they were apprentices, when they were 15, 16, that's all they knew and yet they were being told years later that they were wrong about this knowledge. Metal does not rust in Scotland for three years outside. The engines are fine and they can fly, uh, even though they were the only factory in the world that could still fix them. So this, that was something at the heart of the, the emotional baggage they carried with the story, and we follow that. And um, I think following the film myself and who I want to interview, I followed that too. Uh, and I followed the good guys and I followed the bad guys, and, you know, and it's good to know where you stand on all that. Sorry, that was a very long answer for this. but. <laughs> So yeah. Do you feel like you'll do something similar in the future? Um, no, that's impossible. Sorry, the question is, do you think I'll do something in the future? Um, I think I think Nepal Saran, you know, I don't believe in extraordinary people, but I believe in extraordinary circumstances that bring people together. And I think the, the Venn diagram of all these people coming together and turning out to be, you know, just fantastic guys throughout. That's quite rare to find. The, I'm working on a new project now, and it's 
you know, about it's the same era in um, same circumstances, but it's a very different subject. Um, but that's what interests me at the moment, and um, you know, I'll make sure that something good comes out of it. But, uh, I don't want to say too much because I get superstitious, right? We're still at the accessing <laughs> research, so I'm being vague on purpose. Um, I mean, what I'm more aware of now is how long these things take, right? And hopefully this new one, because of the success of this, will be easier to get that first bucket of money. But um, yeah, if, I mean, if you make any films in Scotland, you, you gotta know you're in for the long haul, and you've gotta make sure that there's all, there's gonna be these milestones that are gonna keep you going personally as well, so yeah. Right, we have time for a couple more, so yes. Uh, how did you So what's the first thing you say? How do you go? How did I prepare? Um, well, the very first one I didn't prepare at all. I literally just stumbled in. Um, that first interview with Bob, where everything is quite vivid, it's from in his uh, uh, his living room, and it literally I was I was interviewing John Keenan, who was kind of struggling remembering things, um, and he said, "Look, I'll take you to Bob Fulton. You might know more." And we turned up, at, Bob lives in a sheltered uh, housing in East Kilbride. And we turned up and there was all these old people standing outside, looking like meerkats, looking a bit lost because the fire alarm was blowing off. Um, so I was introduced to Bob and Bob, I mean, Bob can't hear anything and there was a fire alarm going off. And uh, I suppose, you know, I was introduced by John, so there was this bit of trust straight away. And he just shouted, just wait, just wait. Uh, we'll wait for the alarm to go off and then we'll go inside because it's cold. So we had this weird moment where we were standing in front of Bob Fulton, a person I've been looking for, you know, to me my entire life, uh, in silence. But a smoke alarm to go off. And then we went in and uh, I literally, we just sat down. He says, what do you want to talk about? I says, I'm from Chile. He's like, Chile, did you know about these engines I blacked? <laughs> and I was like, yes, this is what I want to talk about. <laughs> Um, and uh, so I literally just had time to basically set up the camera, which was a basic Canon 5D, you know, you know, and a wee mic on top, and uh, and we went off. Um, and that's when I realized how much, you know, and he, I was amazing because uh, you know he was 89 when I first met him. He's 96 now, and uh, he just had so much detail about the day of the bucket itself and the mechan you know, mechanical of an engine, everything was so kind of pin sharp still. But yet he knew nothing about anything afterwards. For, like for Bob at that time, it really felt like he'd done his thing on the day, and then he was off. Um, so it was a, a, a quick lesson to learn from me as well that I realized, uh, you know, by kind of starting this, I was taking them on a uh, journey that they probably didn't really expect either. Um, so I think from that point on, because uh, part of the interview, Bob's asking me as many questions as I'm asking him, right? So I think from that point on, I became a lot more prepared. So, but um, it's really only when uh, we did the crowdfunding campaign that really a significant amount of money came in, and we were able to like do trips to the archives and stay like for an entire week and start scanning everything and have other people kind of go through me and uh, you know go through thousands of documents and take all these dates and all these uh, names and 
actions Einstein weaving them together. Um, but preparation, I mean, read. What, what, what I found really interesting, which I didn't do initially, was because you don't really expect because it's a documentary, but it's how much you write about the story, right? You write as if it was a novel, and you write as many iterations of it as you imagine you can think of, because that fuels your questions afterwards, right? And obviously, you discard as well afterwards because you're not inventing the story. The story exists, you just have to find it. But um, be able to think of it in so many different ways, and especially in the early days when you don't know where this is going, allows you to create to think of questions that they may have forgotten about, and then I'll come up, oh, well, this guy was involved in this. So it, it um, I suppose the, the fiction process kind of helped a lot, infused a lot, yes. Time for one more, if anyone's got one. Yeah. Oh, just down here, sorry. Uh, what were your father's reaction to the film? Um, Initially, my, my father has PTSD from, from what happened to him in the crew, so initially he was very paranoid. He thought I was kicking uh, a nest and he didn't know what was going to come out of it. Um, but it's, it's funny that he, it's had to, he's had to wait until he could read, because he doesn't speak English, so he read the reviews from the release in, in, in Chile to sort of understand that this was being accepted and it wasn't going to kill me. Um, but that happened like a year after, after the film, you know, well, no, happened after, yeah, a year and a half after the film came out of the Glass Film Festival, and a year after we won the BAFTA, and all these, you know, and were in cinemas everywhere, but that didn't matter until he could read something in Spanish. Um, no, it's very good now, you know, it's Christmas, so he's, he's getting DVD copies to all his mates. It's good. <laughs> it's very lucky. If um, people want to find out more about what happened in the regime and what's going on now, would you, like, would you recommend anywhere? Um, it's really hard to find good stuff in English. Um, there's, a, there's, an, there's an amazing book in English written by a Chinese refugee called Chronic of a Death Foretold, which is about Allende and the coup, and that's very well researched. Um, yeah, learn Spanish. Learn Spanish. <laughs> that's the best. I mean, it's a wonderful language to learn anyway. It's very sexy. It opens up to your world. <laughs> Learning language is good, so learn Spanish and find out more about Chile in general. But uh, yeah, Chronicle of Death Foretold. And, and then follow us on Twitter and Facebook because we're sharing lots of um, English um, articles about what's happening in Chile at the moment, which kind of reflects what happened back then. It's all kind of merging up. Um, there's, a lot, there's a really nasty current that was born in Chile in the coup, uh, which kind of led to the austerity measures that have gone worldwide. And uh, hopefully, it's going to die in Chile very soon. And hopefully, that will spread to the rest of the world, too. Thank you so much. If everyone could join me in thanking Philippe. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming.